0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Welcome to what looked like the first day of winter. And also, today is Veterans Day, and I want to have you join me in thanking all of those who have served or continue to serve for our country. Today is a special Medical Grand Rounds. It's the Lou Matthews lectureship, professorship. And I just wanna tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Matthews. Louis B. Matthews, the lectureship was established in 1990 in the memory of Lou who served here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for over 30 years in his practice. He was a general internist, special interest in hypertension and vascular disease, but he was an amazingly beloved clinician. Harry Bird, who some of you know, who was here as an anesthesiologist and president of our clinic and then went on to work in the state Uh, as a health commissioner at Lou's memorial, talked about Lou as being one of the most beloved physicians that there could be. And it it is because he was an old-fashioned clinician who spent lots of time with his patients and his patients loved him and he enjoyed teaching and passing on to learners of all levels the knowledge that he had. He was a primary care physician. He was the medical director of the medical center at one point. He was a generalist physician, deeply respectful and supportive of his patients, valued highly for his wit and wisdom by his colleagues. His integrity was beyond reproach. He invested himself in the problems of those for whom he bore responsibility. In his honor... The Matthews Professorship provides support for inviting to our campus a distinguished leader, scholar, and teacher in medicine who embodies the qualities of mind and heart for which Dr. Matthews is remembered. And we are delighted today to have Dr. Jim Geiling give us this lecture. I'm also delighted to tell you that Lisa Matthews is here. His, uh, this is Lou Matthews' daughter-in-law and his grandson, Peter, who is here with her. So we thank you for coming today. So let me tell you briefly about Jim. Following his undergraduate education at Bucknell, he got his MD degree at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. He got his MD in 1982, and then embarked on a career in the military uh, in the United States Army Medical Corps for 25 years. During that time, he completed his internal medicine training in San Francisco, and he did his critical care medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He also studied disaster preparedness and medical response during a one-year fellowship in the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Emergency Preparedness. In 2000, he assumed command of the 200-person medical clinic at the Pentagon, a position where he was called upon to practice his training in disaster response on September 11th of 2001, and later again that year with the anthrax threat. Dr. Guiling retired from the Army as a colonel in 2003 and came to our institutions and became the chief of the medical service which he served for 14 years at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in White River Junction and he is a full professor of medicine. Dr. Geiling currently serves as a consulting physician in critical care and emergency medicine for the Arusha Lutheran Medical Center in Arusha, Tanzania where he provides on-site and remote clinical consultation. Currently, he's working on creating a needs assessment for ICU operations and educational requirements and implementing a training program for surgical residents and ICU nurses there. While he's here in the United States, he continues uh, as a consulting physician at the White River Junction VA hospital where he was on call last night. In addition to his teaching and administrative duties uh, at the VA, he has been integrated with Dartmouth's response and Dartmouth's uh, and the state's response to uh, disasters. You may remember that in 2010, with support of Partners in Health, he led a critical care disaster response team to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, from here with a team of our providers and clinicians uh, to to the follow-up of that earthquake. That inspired him to pursue a master's of public health degree, which he completed in 2014 from our Dartmouth Institute. He's also served as co-director of the Dartmouth New England Center for Emergency Preparedness, and professionally, he has served in many uh, positions for um, disaster preparedness uh, in the state, in the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the American College of Chest Physicians. I think we know from all of that that he is a wonderful selection for this year's Matthews professorship. And we will now turn it over to you, Jim. Thanks, Rich, it.
1: Yes, technology worked. Um, good morning, so um, a couple of things. First, thank you very much for having this. Thanks for the kind introduction. And uh, my mother would be very proud. So that's very kind of you to say those things. A couple of things. Uh, I got a lot of help and support from some key friends that are listed up there. Thanks, Kelly and uh, Rich, for your invite, and I appreciate the Matthews family here. We've had some phone conversations and some emails back and forth to, to better understand uh, Dr. Matthews. And I want to say publicly, and I'm sure we all um, can agree how the role our family and friends and colleagues play in sort of making all of this. I'm going to have a conversation about some great things that I've had the opportunity to do, but it doesn't work unless somebody's covering your call in the back and unless your wife and your kids, you know, can deal with the schools and the moves and all that other kind of stuff. I don't have any conflicts of interest. I'm looking for some, so please come up and reach out to me later if you have any. Uh, These are my views, and uh, again, it is a special day. so. I won't ask veterans to stand. There are some here I know because I hate standing when they say that, but also I want to um, also thank uh, their families. You know, my we moved 12 times. My kid was born. My son was born in Germany, so uh, I get it, and the families are part of this celebration as well. So Dr. Rothstein said briefly about um, Dr. Matthews, a couple other, you know, subtle points about him. You know, he's the son of a Baptist minister, a Southern gentleman, and a Navy officer, so... Uh, there's a little bit of a conflict there, right but i um and he married a navy nurse so what a great uh what a great thing to sort of be talking about He's an accomplished leader here's what uh, one of his uh sort of students and residents said about him in the um, magazine Dartmouth Medicine several years ago with that quote from genesis which clearly he was a man of renown and then um What was really poignant is that his uh, lone remaining son of five, Dale, sent this to me the other night. I think that speaks legions of the quality of the man uh, for whom this professorship was named. So i got big shoes to follow i looked at who the guests for the last several years these were the titles of the people and i'm going seriously you want me to give a talk kelly i mean these are some big names so then i said okay kelly what am i going to say so i sanitized it a little bit so um (laughs) she said sure it's veterans day why don't you talk about veterans health you've been doing this for a long time sort of sort of let's go with that, and I had to give a talk at graduation for TDI, so I asked my classmates back then, and this is what they said. Why are you energized? Why do you still do it? You guys, I understand have joint commission here this week. That's always fun. <laughs> and we're having a mock joint commission over there. Why do you still do it? So let me show you my energies. So have I changed since medical school? <laughs> I always wanted to be a doc. I wanted to be a doc since I was in the second grade. And somewhere along there, I wanted to do something exciting and be in the military. And issues popped up right at the right time in my career and had the great opportunity to serve with some wonderful people to include, um, sort of culminating your career. You spend your whole life training to do something, and finally, you get the merit badge on um, 9-11. This is a great place to come and continue that service. Some of you know Joe Grant there in the middle. These are my two predecessors. Peter Moglenicki, and it has been a great honor to sort of work across the street. And also with this group here, that's Paul Farmer there in the middle with a team photo down in Haiti. Um, And then uh, the great opportunity to work with the folks at TDI and to learn a lot. And this is currently where I'm enjoying um, exploring some new venues um, in Tanzania. And, of course, the source behind all of this is I call it my three, three Fs, my faith, my family, and my friends. And I would not think everybody's kind of in the same boat. You don't get to do this without all of those. Okay, so where are we going? Um, I'm going to set the stage with you here. We'll just sort of sit here. Um, There's a couple of clips. I've already talked to Lisa that uh, this is okay for her and family to be sharing. We'll walk a little bit through the epidemiology of this reformation in military medicine and some things that it's bringing to the stage here some of it probably not common for the internal medicine audience but you know at some point in time we might get called to do it and so that's what this is kind of all about and then some take-home lessons okay so let's set the stage who are the people that i've been working with for so many years and what are the what's the setting that says all right um we got to be be ready to take care of these folks How do I turn? (laughs) This is Sergeant Stephen Pink's specialist,
0: Michael Moria. Is that where we want to go? Probably not. I'm not supposed to talk to the media.
1: I'm not the media, dammit.
0: The day is here. Life will change. Uh, You ready? Bring it on. Every soldier eventually wants to go in combat. It's natural instinct. If you let fear get to you, then you're not going to be doing your job. Every single time you go up here, there's attacks. It's unbelievable. Hey, Pastor, your ass crack is right in my face. Keep going, brother. You want to play? That's really hard for him to not have his dad.
1: This little kid in the middle of
0: a war zone. off! In the beginning, he's like, right, tell me, dirty.
1: The world's newest democracy. (laughs) They're shooting at me. You'll put 150,000 troops in there and say we're there to
0: create democracy. we are going to drive through a window and party, things (laughs) now. We're going to create money. I support George Bush. I'm going to have to pay for the oil. Worst thing in my life. For real, don't look at it, but he's not the same person anymore. I will not go back. The Iraqi people are who are there to help, and we just killed one.
1: So, okay, that's way, that's a long ways away. I don't take care of these folks. It's not that far away anymore. It's not, right? It was a couple of years ago, real close to this, real close. Maybe you've been to a meeting. Maybe you have to just go somewhere on vacation. <laughs> Or maybe it's right here. So that's where we're going. That's the stage and how are we as a profession ready to take care of this. So there are some lessons learned and that's where we're going to go. Let's go through some lessons learned and kind of bring it sort of the medicine to where we're at. So I'm going to take you back a few years ago to Somalia. Have not been to Somalia, not a great place on a good day. Some of the history, for those of you who sort of remember, there was a large amount of people dying from starvation. This is kind of like history all over again. Pick South Sudan or other places. First President Bush says, I can't do this. We're going to send some US troops in there. US assumes command right at the change of our presidency. Isn't it interesting how that commonly happens? If you're going to be a foreign leader, why don't you work into that white space when we're going through our changes? So then, in March, we go after this bad guy named Farah Adid, and then in August, bad things happen. If you want to see that, go to Black Hawk Down. What was the medical presence on the ground? The, these were the folks who were there. I was running the ICU up at Landstuhl in Germany, so we knew something was going down. This is kind of what it lived, What it looked like. It was on an airfield. Those were the resources that they had. They thought it was going to be a stable peacekeeping mission, delivering food and water, um, and maybe chasing down a bad guy. The first thing, the missing story is this. So soldiers, and being soldiers, they gather pets. That's one thing they always do. you are not supposed to, but they always find a pet, a rat, or a dog or something. But this guy was out swimming, and he gets a bad shark bite. And he got medevac up to us in Landstuhl and then on back to the States, as you can see, unfortunately died. The only trauma surgeon, certified trauma surgeon in Mogadishu went with that guy. Um, and also, he, they uh, used their entire blood supply. The next day or so, a lady, a uh, female soldier is hurt by a mind so serendipitously, they said, OK, we need blood. They learned the process. They greased the process to get donors from the 4,000 brigade people who were there. And then the following day is when Black Hawk Down happens at 5:30, sorry, 3.30 in the afternoon. Many of you have seen the movie. Helicopter goes in, guy falls out of the helicopter, then a helicopter gets shot down, and um, a large number of people died. These were the cases that they saw 36 hours. There were only three surgeons, 112 casualties. Mostly extremity wounds, and they were uh, quickly medevaced up to us and then on to Germany. This is the first. Soldier went down, they open up the gates, he's not strapped into his rope, he falls to the ground. Now um, the chaos ensues, now they're trying to extract him. Helicopter sits there and hovers, easy target for an RPG. That one goes down, long day. Another one of the first casualties was Jamie, a highlight, the six liters of crystalloid. He died, he died two and a half hours after the injury. And if you go to Black Hawk Down, there's an issue, there's a part in the story, and I have the video clip of them trying to secure his femoral artery right in. Unfortunately, he exsanguinated right in front of him. The medic on their ground, it was with a Delta Force. The medic was um, Bob Mabry, who then ended up going to Ushus and is now an emergency medicine doc sort of running the program. There was a lot of lessons learned out of this battle. And the point is, is that where I'm heading with this is so many of the lessons learned have affected us in not only what we're doing, today, but clearly helped us in the management of our casualties for the last 13 or 14 years since we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. We know that these are not just a simple um, snowmobiler running into uh, another or drinking in, in January that we see up here. These are multi-trauma wounds with TBIs alike and a lot of blood systems, and there's a lot of training gaps that we need to learn. Our surgeons need to know how to do this better. The support mechanisms, the intensivists, the blood banks. we got to figure out, because this is more catastrophic than we're kind of used to. It was not a total failure. John Holcomb was one of the general surgeons on the ground, classmates of Brooks, right? Ended up going to the Institute for Surgical Research, now runs a huge trauma program um, in Houston. They went back, and the medics did heroic things. And I also, um, I always want to make sure we don't forget, I talk about my family. This is also part of my family, other people that did great things where the nurses were awesome, right? These are, for the most part, young second lieutenant and captains. They're 25 to 28 years old, and they're just doing amazing things. I can imagine, I'm wondering if Epic would handle these orders. i'm not sure that would kind of fly right now the joint commission might have a little problem if they found those orders but wouldn't that be amazing if we could do that um so unfortunately the military knows how to do funerals very well all right so what are the lessons learned so we went back and revisited ron bellamy was a thoracic surgeon in vietnam and he looked at Why did people die? There was a whole bunch of medical records. In fact, they were at USU, so I was there, part of this, looking at the study. And all these people died. Nobody critically looked at it. And when they found it, that there was really some preventable things that we might be able to do. Maybe these people are exsanguinating in front of us, right? People were exsanguinating at Boston Marathon. And these were some lessons that we learned from way back in Vietnam and have applied over the last several years. This led to the development of a thing called TCCC or Tactical Combat Casualty Care. I can tell you that the folks here at DART know all about this because this is now the standard for doing this, and there are latest updates on how to manage people like this, care under fire, care when you are, are in the remote areas like the Wilderness Medical Society teaches. That's a great organization that I'm a member of. Um, and care while you're trying to medically evacuate a person because no longer do we just give care, and then leapfrog the ideas to continue care along the way. It's run by a committee called the Tactical Combat Casualty Committee, mostly trauma surgeons, but a lot of other folks to include pre-hospital providers. Most of them, as of currently, have had um, deployment experience. And if you're looking for the source on where they do all this, they have a lot of things that you can download and bring up to speed. It's deployedmedicine.org. And, um, um, they can, uh, You can see what all the latest stuff. Here's how things have changed. So this is kind of the way we did it in Mogadishu and pre-9-11. A bunch of things there I highlight. We didn't do tourniquets. I learned tourniquets as a Boy Scout, right? Then the, suddenly they said, don't do tourniquets anymore, right? So medics weren't taught to that. We still teach that oftentimes too large um, GI bleed, right? I have a GI bleed in the ICU, two large-bore IVs pour into crystalloid, right? That's still cor- sort of the current, was the current mantra in uh, shock. Some am morphine, making sure you always have large-bore IVs and you spend an, an inordinate amount of time trying to put an ET tube down somebody when they're exsanguinating because that C is after A, right? So those are some lessons learned, and that has sort of brought us up to speed excuse me, with aggressive use of tourniquets and care under fire. This concept of hypotensive resuscitation don't open up the floodgates by pouring in tons of of crystalloids. Pain medicine is appropriate, appropriate early. We'll talk a little bit real briefly about how that might affect PTSD. There's TXA and other tourniquets um, that we can talk about. So those are some lessons learned from Mogadishu. Those are some lessons learned looking back at Vietnam. How has it been applied sort of today? So these are the casualties um, that happened on 9-11, and these are the casualties that have happened in those two wars. Um, Since 9-11, the dates ended there. Um, There are still ongoing operations, of course. How do you do ongoing real-time QI uh, assessment research as to um, how we're doing and applying these lessons learned? And the military has these groups to sort of follow the data. Perhaps we need to adjust how we care for these patients during this time frame. In other words, do it on the fly. So real-time epidemiology knows that most of the people early on in the war were getting hurt by mines in IEDs, um, as opposed to other wars where it's always extremities, a lot of head and neck injuries. As you recall, the the gunners, as you saw in that video, the MPs are sort of sitting on the top of a Humvee. They're riding around. They're easy targets. So a lot of uh, issues there. For the most part, they're young people. Unfortunately, it's also the folks who have an entire life of creating income and families and businesses, and we're taking that away from so many of them. So that's who we've seen the top line so that the injury severity score and the killed in action went up during this time period but the died of wounds and um and the case fatality rate sort of stabilized in the yellow and red lines there so despite worse injuries we continue to sort of improve the management now how are we going to how do you look at this systematically And this is a great graph, they call it, what do we do and care for people before the event and after the event? So the event is there in the center. That's a blast. The the event could be Boston Marathon. The event could be Las Vegas shooting. Some people call it left of the puff or right of the puff. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is what can we do left of the puff? What can you do to sort of help mitigate the impact if you start to have um, bad things happen? I'll focus on just two little things. One of them is perhaps we can look at the equipment. Maybe we can protect people better. So for the first time ever in this war, they took the situational data, the tactical data, and they combined it with the medical data. And if we looked at what is the injury armor, what is the pattern of injury? So we look at the patients and where were they injured and what kind of armor were they wearing at the time? What was their injury severity score? What were their injuries? And we also did virtual autopsies on every, um, and they still do this on every deceased person over there. Try to match that with the tactical data and you might be able to get a sense of, OK, maybe if I put a different plate on in our thing, we might be able to save some of these soldiers. This is real time, ongoing research, quality improvement kind of things. So great, maybe we change our, uh, our armor, maybe we change our vehicles, um, and sort of that. We also sort of look at, how do we train our people? We need to rehearse this. We need to look at the noncombatants that we're gonna be dealing with. We take the surgeons to go to Miami and LA County and they go not just as a surgeon, but they go as a surgical team because you have to work in a coordinated effort. Any of us that work in an ICU or you're working in the chemo suite or any, it's the team effort and you have to synchronize those efforts. Some of it's getting pretty creative, right? A lot of simulation, a lot of game theory a lot of virtual reality, that's becoming high tech, and how are we preparing our future folks for doing this? So, I'll bring you up a little exercise here that's kind of interesting. <laughs>
0: Getting killed, things are blowing up, and everybody's running everywhere. So, who's good, who's bad, who's a threat, who isn't, has to be made almost instantaneously. And this was a beautiful event, right? In, in the fact that it was complete fog war, we don't know what's going on. Guys in a non standard uniform, got, I got what appears to be a threat, you know, what do I, do? In instant, I gotta make a decision. Why uh, so we have an urgent surgical uh, IND blaster?
1: So everybody there is in uniform, but the same thing happened in Boston. The same thing happened in Las Vegas, and there were physicians in that group. And um, so if we want to affect the outcome of our patients, some of those things are left of the puff is what we want to think about. How about right of the puff? Okay, the person's been injured. The event's taken place. How do we take care of the folks, Um, you know, when you're halfway around the world or you're in rural um, northern northeast kingdom? So one way to do is with these sort of go through these echelons of care, right? Uh, where does that come from? It actually started by Baron LeRae. He was Napoleon's surgeon. It was um, strengthened by Jonathan Letterman, who was uh, the Union uh, Surgeon General for many years. And this was um, the way the echelons of care look like right now. They're sometimes called level ones or wall ones. You get the medic or self-aid <clears throat> then you usually go to like a battalion aid station or event like place like that now we're putting forward surgical teams and critical care folks out sooner than that just kind of like the police getting to take care of the the folks the, the shooter as fast as possible working way back to a combat support hospital launch tool and then back to here let's go through a case So let's walk a guy through this. So the Joint Commission right now is doing the tracer methodology, right? Person hits the door. They walk in the emergency department. Who touches them as they make their way through DH? So who touches the patient as they make their way through these echelons of care? So this is a real case. Guy's in a bad part of Iraq. They're on ground patrols, and their RPG comes through. He has massive facial trauma. Traumatic amputation, loss of consciousness, hemorrhage, and shock. And this is what Sergeant Mittman said about his blast. So the first person he sees is probably one of his buddies, called a combat lifesaver, than a medic. They might be able to do some tourniquets, some hemostatic bandages. Every squad has somebody who has extra training and first aid. So that's kind of like, because it's most likely not going to be a medic, it's going to be somebody with you there. So the police and the SWAT teams all do the same things these days, right? One of the members on a SWAT team now has advanced medical training to sort of be the medic or the doc for the team. Then you work to the 91 Whiskey or the Medic. These are now nationally registered EMTs with advanced training, so they're regular like street medics, affectionately called DOC um, in their unit. And their primary thing is to take care of hemorrhage, right, because these people, we've seen that as one of the major causes of death, and if we can take care of that with tourniquets, ligatures, TXA is coming into the conversation about it, this in the pre-hospital setting and the like. So a lot of things that they can do to take care of that. Craig Fitzgerald was uh, Air Force PJ. He was a Dartmouth student here for a bunch of years. We were on the ski patrol together. These were pictures that he said from Afghanistan of improvised tourniquets. Now <clears throat> every ambulance in the um, in the military for sure and more, especially in the streets, I can't comment, in Hanover carry these combat action tourniquets, which allow you to, to put this on with one hand to include yourself. All of, when at the height of the war, Every soldier who went outside the wire for a patrol in one of their vehicles on the outside arm and the outside leg. So you're on the driver's side, your left arm and your left leg. They put a tourniquet on prophylactically in case they needed to use it. That's a hell of a way to go to work. And it works. That's one of those great lessons learned, right? You need to have them with you. But clearly they worked in Boston. Twenty-seven tourniquets were applied. And they worked in Las Vegas. The other things are the advancement of the hemostatic bandages. Uh, they were exothermic, the original version, so they called some heat injuries and the like. A lot of that has changed. We see that it decreases the amount of transfusions, it saves energy or it saves um, limbs and it saves lives and there's a whole host of them that are out there on the market right now. How about pain management? So the historically was give somebody two milligrams or five milligrams of morphine IM, that's old school. Now pain management starts at the point of injury, sort of given some ketamine, some fentanyl lollipops, maybe some nonsteroidals, eventually epidural blocks. This may help prevent PTSD. There's a lot of uh, sort of early literature, there's some conflicts about that. It's hard to do an RCT in this kind of setting. But if you can imagine take down the stress of the level because you've just lost your leg by managing the pain, you might have significant effects on these patients years down the road. What happened to Sergeant Mitman? Well, the idea is to get him to surgery within a golden hour. Does that matter? Is that still apply today? Well, here's what Secretary of Defense Gates said. We're going to make it happen. So that's the way things sometimes happen in the Army. You sort of look up, guy outranks you, he tells you what you're going to do. You kind of go, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do today. So that's what he did. Imagine what this implies is putting more resources downrange, right? DART has helicopter in Manchester, right? There's obviously other reasons to have a DART helicopter in Manchester. But if you have them closer to the event, you can make things happen. So it works. I'm sorry, these are really hard for me to see here. But the return to duty, the KIA killed in action ratio, the died of wounds, and the case fatality ratio got better after they implemented this. So we've got good data to show that. And even though the Case fatality rate was going down. You can see what happened when uh, the process was implemented. It significantly decreased at the same time, while the yellow line being the number of patients transported within the the golden hour improved. So that works. Times are short. It doesn't take long, um, at least when we were highly resourced in there, to get somebody from the point of injury um, back to a level two or level three facility where they could do damage control surgery, perhaps 7A, (laughs) TXA, and L-STAT for transport and pain management. This is what a forward surgical team looks like. That's what their composition is. And the place that you can see them operating is a building of convenience. They don't usually take anything. There's a couple of pallets and that's what they do. This is their job. Really just to um, package and ship. And again, it will be in a building of convenience with a variety of different um, cases that they see. It is damage control resuscitation to address the coagulopathy of trauma. So instead of like always chasing the red cells and you count the red cells, how many times do we do this in GI bleed? Tell me how many times we do this. We give them a couple units of blood, you sort of wait a couple hours, you get another CBC, right? You don't have that time in these kind of patients that we're sort of taking care of. So it's one to one to one right there at the bottom with early fibrinogen. We use a lot of blood during this time period. The percent of casualties requiring blood was significant, and a lot of them required more than 10 units in 24 hours. So it's a huge issue, and how do we manage these massive bleeds, which are trauma, um, all trauma-related, and these were the percent survival of those patients who had the massive uh, trauma. All right. So um, just to sort of wrap up the trauma piece, so this is sort of some of the current recommendations of the one-to-one-one red cells, platelets, and plasma is kind of where um, folks are going and warm or fresh whole blood if you have the opportunity to do that. The other current device that's out there is um, the Reboa. It's a catheter that you can um, place up into the aorta. And obviously, you can think about putting it above the renal arteries, the impact. But if you are exsanguinating from below, you're exsanguinating from an abdominal injury, this is the only way to do it. If you can get something up there, they're even talking about taking that into the pre-hospital setting. TBIs are one of the signature um, injuries of this war, right? Amputations and TBIs. And TBIs, as that whole thing has extrapolated into conversations with the NFL, right? We we're all talking about our kids who are playing soccer and you have a concussion here at Hanover. How are we going to take care of the kids here? It's changed our concept of the acute brain injury. So if you are close to a blast over there, you have to undergo this evaluation by a medic. And if they find something abnormal, you have to go undergo evaluation by a doc. And if it's significant, you have to be... Um, put to rest and there are clinical practice guidelines that have been published out there sort of combine both the regular, um, the concept of how do we deal with somebody who was exposed to a blast as well as somebody who just got hit in the head playing football or soccer or hockey or one of those other things that we do appear, and the same group put out the management and clinical practice guidelines for severe TBI treatment casualties. So those of you who work in that kind of setting can see some of that stuff is um, what we sort of practically do. He might go to a forward surgical team or he might go to a combat support hospital, which is a lot bigger animal, a lot more resources. When you think about this, how much gas does it take to run one of those, right? Just think about the logistics of running the generators to sort of make that happen. Has a lot of people. And the first place that you'll see an intensivist and the length of stay goes down, if you have an intensivist on 24-7, that's good job security for people who like um, to do that. So now we have to move him out of theater. <clears throat> World War II, first Gulf War, we sent a lot of people, big hospitals in Kuwait, a lot of resources, and the Air Force and a friend of mine. Chris Farmer, uh, former president of the SCCM, helped develop the concept of the continuous of the critical care aeromedical transport team or the CCAT, where in the past, from Vietnam, it would take days to get somebody all the way back to Walter Reed, you know, 45 days, 10 days, leapfrogging from huge hospitals, drained the medical assets from around the country, demand those. We can now do it in four days. You were injured in Afghanistan. you were at Walter Reed four days later four days later. And you've had damage control surgery along the way. The idea is to do <clears throat> this care, not just episodically in a leapfrog mechanism, but once you start the management, you take folks like Mike Lauria, one of our Dartmouth students here, a former Air Force PJ, also flies for DART. You start taking care of those kids and the injured people right away and continue it through that. You need some tools to do that. You need a ventilator. You need an ISTAT. You need some drugs. This is one. It's a it's an animal. It's a huge thing. It has all of that stuff kind of built into it. Put them on an airplane with a, a team that has been trained in a variety of different metropolitan trauma centers. Give them some gear, and then go for a ride. How hard is it to take somebody here from the ICU to a CT scanner? <laughs> now take that CT scanner 4,000 miles away or 8,000 miles away, and how are we going to do that along the way when the air outside uh, altitude is 35,000 feet and, John, the inside air pressure is 8,000 feet, right? So you're still higher than Denver flying in this. So um, a lot of challenges in trying to get back to Landstuhl and then back to Walter Reed. Okay, let's start to bring this home. So Sergeant Mitman or other folks, or even the folks in Boston or the folks in Las Vegas, we've talked about some pre-hospital things. How do we train them? Maybe give them some more equipment, maybe some other things. How do we treat them through this paradigm of moving in the echelons of care? Now we're back to Dartmouth. Now we're back to Boston. Now we're back to Walter Reed. What are some interesting things we can do here? So Sergeant Mitman Imagine his face is gone like that. We know the impact of, of organizations like Operation Smile and what that does to a child and how that impacts on their socioeconomic status and their productivity in their whole life. Imagine Sergeant Mittman, who's lost his face, right? His employability, his self-worth, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, some dramatic pictures, but also, for him, some dramatic recoveries, and there's other things like that. What about uh, amputees? there are the military there's a great um, restorative place down in um, boston right how do we do these kind of things well these folks are missing a lot of joints and how do we get them uh, to sort of be more productive to sort of be able to take you know their amputee leg like, and these are 20 year old kids too right i mean I gotta, <laughs> all right <laughs> this is a Jim like jumping up there i can't do this on a good day with two legs so right Reminds me of the CrossFit people over there.
0: Beautiful.
1: Some guys get a little bit crazy with their prostheses. So he goes out to shake his hand and he spins it around for you. And some of them are getting really creative This was a device that first was started on uh, monkeys and uh, primates, and eight years later, um, the DEXA arm, uh, funded by both DOD and VA. Um, And this is, you know, three-year-old images, and so you can imagine how the technology has sort of changed. So those are some of the robots that we can do. Why don't we just... um, Uh, I am thirsty, thanks. Why don't we give them them a new limb, right? And so you've seen this happening before. They've replaced limbs in Louisville. They've replaced hands in Pittsburgh. And we've had a tragic event in the Upper Valley. You've seen the pictures um, of a lady in France. Some people are doing... Um, facial transplants how do I know if a soldier or person is gonna get injured I don't I don't have a clue but maybe you know person goes into basic training my son's thinking of doing this knucklehead but he is maybe we get a data set of who you are when you go into the service not only do we know your blood type and any other things like that maybe we build a virtual you right maybe we have a track of virtual you when something is missing or hurt or injured, maybe we rebuild that for you. So we do that with tissue engineering. So that whole concept is sort of changing. How do we mirror and match sort of the engineering with the biology? And the A-FIRM study, um, an A-FIRM organization has put a lot of money in it. We've got researchers here in Dartmouth who are participating in the tissue regeneration Thing and involves a lot of folks from a lot of different disciplines, so why don't you regrow an ear for somebody who's lost their ear? And it doesn't necessarily need to be blown off. It might be the squamous cell that had it come off, right? Why, why can't we be able to do that? Clearly works for burns right now. But Jeff Ling is a really good friend of mine, the smartest neurocritical care guy I've ever worked with. We worked at Walter Reed together. If you Google him, he's been on 60 Minutes a bunch, got out of the Army, was interviewed by Google and Facebook and everybody else. We just can't – he worked for a group called DARPA, which kind of says doesn't say no. They have a lot of money. So one thing he said was, why am I spending time doing mouth to mouth or even bag valve mask on somebody and within um, a year and a half built a short little battery powered you know, ventilator that's you know, a little bit bigger than my iPhone, has unbelievable uh, battery length? Let's ma- learn to make it faster. Why do we have to go on the left? That's how we make our drugs can't get some of the anti-malarials in, the, in you know, Sub-Saharan Africa anyway. Why don't we make it a portable thing? Why don't we do it locally? And that's what's being created there on the right. It's nice to have a, a prosthetic that you can sort of move around. Why can't you drive it? Up and straight down and
0: left and right diagonally. I can close it.
1: And open it. She's thinking and it. Go and back. That is just the most astounding thing I've ever seen. Can we shake hands? No, really.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, come right over here? Yes, you come right over here. Okay. Grasp your hand, and there we go. Oh my goodness. Wow. And I can do a fist bump if you'd like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
1: She has another great video of her eating chocolate, and it's a great, (coughs) great one. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about where I've worked for the last 14 years, because VA is obviously part of this rehab process. You get them back, and it's not just you know, a lot of the patients that our house staff is taking care of across the river with all their ongoing medical problems. There's a lot of high-speed VAs around the country that are sharing some of those things with DOD that I've already described. It's been around for quite some time, with that mission to care for them who have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan from President Lincoln's second inaugural um, address. Okay, this is real quick. This is VA 101. I know that that's, um, it's a big animal. We are a small place over there, but you call me go, what, I don't, I don't have any clue, you know? It's a pretty big place. There's a lot of folks, you know, that are engaged there. Uh, increasingly more women that we take care of. And it's broken into three different agencies or administrations. Um, You kind of don't think about that, but the one across the river belongs to VHA, and we run a lot of hospitals and a lot of clinics, and we see a lot of people, and we do good work. I downloaded a bunch of slides, everything from the tissue stuff that I just described in the amputations to really remarkable things in hepatitis C, for example. Um, so, those are some great things, but um, we'll spare the slides. This is a, sort of the three-legged stool of taking care of folks, not just clinically. And we have a, an important research role, but also a really important education role. And I can't, uh, let me just put a shout out for the house staffer here. I think it's an amazing relationship that we have back and forth with our house staff and with our medical students. We are um, eternally grateful for your service, and we believe as an institution that American medicine is better because of this relationship, not just here, but in other places. And it's been going on for quite some time, and as you can see, a large number of providers have been there. All right. Where we've been is um, kind of around the block. I tried to bring you into the fold with a couple of videos of maybe some remote things that most of you have never experienced and hopefully never will in uniform, but Boston, Las Vegas. While I'm downloading the Las Vegas thing, my iPhone goes off and there's a shooting in Texas. While I'm doing this, it's unfortunately where we are. And we're the healthcare profession. And what I've tried to do is lay out a story of, you know, how this care for these people and others um, has uh, evolved over time. And we will play a role. We're internists in here, but we will play a role multi, um, mul- at multiple levels. This institution, unfortunately, experienced an event um, you know not too long ago, but there are resources that are out there. I encourage you, we kind of get comfortable here. A lot of places are comfortable. They were comfortable in the church, right? So it's a really challenging thing, but don't be afraid. You know, after the anthrax attack in Washington, every powdered Dunkin' Donuts in Washington, D.C. was suspicious. It was, but people's, you know, pucker factor was up, and I would encourage people to do that. If you haven't taken the active shooting training, haven't been through that, that's what it is, and that's what we need to do. and We all need um, to be familiar with it. And we as physicians and we as healthcare providers need to understand not just CPR and not just doing BLS but how to do this concept called Stop the Bleed, which was you know an amalgamation of the American College of Surgeons and other organizations, and it's out there and it's a lot of the concepts that I've already talked about. Finally, this is tough stuff. And it affects all of us, and the National Center for PTSD across the river is not just taking care of veterans who have had their head bonked or who have had faced some really serious challenges. They are a national resource with a mission that's described there, and not just for the military and not just um, for veterans. There's um, a great web page that's there for. For family members, for patients, there's one for um, for professional folks and for the press, and they have, um, you know, how do you take care of shootings and what can you expect after the Las Vegas tragedy. As Rich said, today is the federal holiday, so a lot of people have off. You guys don't, but a lot of people have off today. Don't try to go to the bank or the post office because they are closed. It was started in 1926 in honor of the armistice, which took place after World War I in November of 1918 at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. That's when it was named. And I close with this guy. So John McCray was, um, first he was an artilleryman, and then he became a physician. I didn't realize this. He was a pathologist up at UVM. And uh, his brother was a physician at Hopkins and a dear friend and associate of Sir William Osler. Well, medical grand rounds, right? I mean, had to bring that into the story. And one of his dear friends, when he was stationed uh, in the war zone, uh, died. And at his death, he penned in Flanders Fields. Um, and I'll leave it there for a second, but I'd encourage you to go just Google it and you can read it. Veterans Day is supposed to celebrate people who have served, Memorial Days to those who have died. Um, but it is when you see the red flower, somebody, lady back there, has has the appropriate remembrance day in Canada, Armistice Day, right? Um the one I got from the Legion fell apart, so I couldn't wear it. I'd encourage you to go read it. And that's where I'll end, and I'll be happy to take any questions or comments. Thank you very much. So the question is how can we prevent, how can we improve resiliency? <clears throat> well, one thing we know for sure is if you're having a tr- troubled life and then you go are exposed to this, you're still going to have a troubled life right after, right? So how do, you, how do you take care of, how do you sort of self-select the people who have the potential to sort of be exposed to those kind of settings? And that's that's a really a tough question as far as who should be going in the military, who should be doing that. There have been looks at medications to kind of prevent that. I will tell you that the pain management is really, it really has turned out to be a really important thing. Maybe we can, not unlike stage fright, maybe we can, if, if hemodynamically you can do it, or perhaps we have a different medicine. We can give somebody beta blockers in the sense that sort of that adrenergic surge at the time of the event can sort of mitigate those feelings. Because later on, you can understand the hyper hyperacuity, the hypersensitivity that people um, uh, undergo. One of the treatments that's being managed after the event, not so much during the event, is the concept they use in virtual reality. So you can actually take the patient, and it's a little bit challenging, but it's kind of like, My analogy is allergy shots, right? You sort of go in, you go into the virtual space, you can actually go back to the event and relive that in small doses to sort of make you um, become more um, tolerant. And because we take the people who have experienced this, they are the ones sort of sitting in the perimeter in the room, they know where the two exits are, they know exactly how to get out of there, and they're hyper-aware of what's going on. So those are a couple thoughts I have. I'll be around. Thank you, um, Lisa and Peter, for coming. appreciate it. I hope we did your father-in-law and grandfather good service. And thank you for uh, continuing to sponsor this um, talk. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim.